thank you for coming, everybody. And thanks to Dan for hosting this and um, Aaron and Jeremiah for inviting me. Um, I'm Chris Watson. I'm a freelance sound recorder. I'm based in um, Newcastle upon Tyne, northeast of England. And um, I guess, like many of you, I work with sound and have done for a long time. And the, the great thing about it is I work across lots of different mediums. So I work in, um, because I'm freelance, I work in. Uh, in some uh, feature films, I do a lot of television documentaries, I work in radio production, I also work with a record label in London called Touch who release my material. Um, um, I do some sound for um, games, electronic games, PlayStation games, uh, and I also do installations and presentations. It's one of the fantastic things about what we do, it crosses so many mediums and boundaries. Uh, some of the camera people I work with in films and television are, you know, I mean, they do great work, but it's quite limited in uh, their outlet. With what we do with sound, what I find endlessly fascinating is this appeal across all sorts of different mediums and the power that results from that, the way that sound has the ability to strike directly into our imaginations and hearts in a way that I don't think any other um, sense does, maybe, maybe smell, but... Um, Certainly, it's far more powerful, I think, than a, than a visual format. What I brought is some recordings of mine, which I put down as a guideline. When I when I go out, um, I quite like to have an aim, whether it's film or radio or whatever I'm doing. So what I've done over the years is structure three very basic elements um, to build the soundtracks uh, that, that I then subsequently go to work with. So I've defined these. They're not out of a textbook. It's not the law. They're not rules. It's simply something that I've simplified for my own use. So it's open to debate and argument and discussion. And I don't, this isn't a lecture, so if anybody's got any comments um, or criticisms about any of it, I'm very happy to talk about it. And I'm sure many of us here, um, you know, have views and opinions. Um, so what I'd like to do with this first section is just play some examples simply of the three elements that I, I use. Uh, I work mostly, I work solely on location uh, and I do a lot of post-production, but I work mostly with wildlife sounds, natural history sounds uh, for the productions that I am generally work towards. So most, but not all, of what I brought are based around <coughs> the sounds of the natural world, uh, animals and the habitats which, um, which they live within. Um, and the first thing about it is for me, it's, always, it's like I try and see this, that place as sort of an acoustic landscape and there are, there are perspectives for a start uh, between those. And um, I'll play some. These first recordings, these first are all stereo recordings, but because Dan's got this great four channel surround system, I've also put the stereo into the rear speakers so there's two here, the front left and right, and a left surround and right surround, but this, this is, these are simply stereo recordings. I'm a wildlife sound recorder, so I do lots of this, as I guess you do. This is a dawn chorus near my home in Northumberland in England um, in May, about 4am. Very wide angle stereo. Um, lots of things happening, um, all more or less at the same level, but lots of information. And 
important that it's stereo so you have this spatialization of it. So I spend a lot of time recording sounds like that, but I also record a lot of sounds in mono in close-up like this. <laughs> was a lioness that was um, trying to reject the advances of a, a male lion. Um, I was fortunately on the roof of a Toyota Land Cruiser at the time, <laughs> but just with one microphone, not two, um, but just, just pointing down. So nearly everything I do is within those two perspectives, wide-angle stereo atmospheres, as I call them, and single individual elements um, in mono, such as that lioness. The first elements I want to talk about in a bit more detail are what I call atmospheres um, or in film terms they're known certainly in, in Europe as wild tracks I think I mean room tone is another name which I know you give them over here but I, I use the term atmosphere simply to define the, a sense of place um, and there are only a few rules that I apply to them the first one is it should be long and continuous so something like two or three minutes, um, a continuous recording of that length. Um, the most important thing for my terms is that quite often atmospheres are simply the building blocks that I then go on to layer something with, as I'm sure all, all of you do if you, when you're working in post-production. So for me, an important thing about an atmosphere is that it has a small dynamic range. That means it'll just sit there it won't get much louder, it won't get much quieter. It's like listening to music on FM radio, something that's highly compressed. It doesn't mean it has to be quiet, there, are, there can be loud atmospheres, but the idea is it, it's just continuous, and it's effectively the foundation of a soundtrack. It tells the audience, whether it's radio or whatever it is, or film, effectively, subconsciously, all this, all this that you're seeing, if it's got a visual element attached, is in one place and we very quickly our brains are very clever at sorting that out and attaching that this is an atmosphere recording made in exactly the same place as the dawn chorus the first track i played but not recorded in may but in december um, more or less this time of year about seven in the morning so it's a very quiet atmosphere it's just the ambience of a winter woodland a winter forest with a very distant owl singing the point about the owl is that it's within the range, the sort of dynamic mush of, of that forest in winter. It doesn't break out. talk over this bit but I'll play it again. The important, th the other critical thing, as I'm sure you all know anybody who mixes stuff, is the level at which you play it back at. I've had to pull that right down. There is no point playing sounds like this too loud because our brain is very clever, I think, at realising that that's far too loud. If it's Ideally, in my opinion, it should be listened to, whether it's in a mix or if you're listening to something about the level you would experience it. And it's obviously hard when it's in a 
fairly large social group, but if you're out in that forest at 7 a.m., 6 a.m., that's more or less the level you would hear it at. If it's any louder, it, it's the, the spell's broken, it's just destroyed. So it's crucial, I think, the listening level. Also, because of that, I think any of you who do record, the temptation, if you're working in environments like that, is to cut, is to filter the bottom end out so you can get more level. I try not to do that with these recordings because by the time it's played back at a lower level, unless it's got traffic or aircraft noise on it, in fact, the low, the low frequency component is important because it just sits there almost in a, at a subliminal level. If you filter these recordings, they don't work so well, I think, when, you, when played back at the right level. Um, and the other point is about the dynamic range, is that there's nothing to, to jump out again and, and break that sense of atmosphere because invariably other sounds will be layered on top of these recordings. It's, it's, this is the piece that tells the listener, as I said earlier, this is all in one place. The interesting thing I think about that, Dan, is this, re is this master vary all four levels? Yeah. Can I use that to know yeah. things? If you're using that in a piece, no matter what it is, that atmosphere will just sit there and you can then make use other things on top of it. But you know, you start to have a conversation, you start to think, you start to forget about this. So some people, you know, they, they may seem relatively unimportant, and they are unimportant until they go off. And then there's a massive hole in your soundtrack. That's why these simple, you know, potentially uninteresting sounds I think are important, because they're there and when they go when they disappear like that, then there's a huge hole in your soundtrack. So simple as they may be, and very, you know, not much information in them, they are crucially important. I also record them in stereo, like um, uh, most of my other work, at least stereo, because then it helps to give that, that sense of space and place to an environment. Um, they don't have to be quiet. Um, they just need, as I said earlier, I think, to have a small dynamic range. So you can have a loud atmosphere. Um, it's just that it doesn't drop below a certain level. This is an atmosphere recording, not made in Northumberland, but in the Congo, um, just at sunset, on the edge of some tropical forest where you get this quite short period, because you have quite short sunrise and sh sunsets in the tropics. But there's this period where the insect um, chorus kicks in and it's this incredible just golden shimmering moment of maybe 30 or 40 minutes when there are not thousands tens hundreds of thousands of insects just as the temperature drops and the light level falls it's a really magical period it is a golden hour of sound I know people use that in film terms um, so it's an atmosphere that only lasts each day a short period but when it, when it happens, it's loud. You have to raise your voice simply to have a conversation. So this is a, an atmosphere recording in the Congo at sunset. But, um, it's loud, but it has a small dynamic range. And I would say, if anybody's ever been, I have to raise my voice now to speak over it. 
that's more or less at the level you would experience it at. Also, as I've discovered latterly with sounds like that, there's all, what we're hearing is really just the bottom end. You know, we, we think ourselves as pretty smart. Most of these insects communicate in the ultrasonic. So what we're hearing is like the lower harmonics of an instrument. We're just hearing the fall off in our um, audio range, which is relatively limited. Most of the energy and activity is way off into the ultrasonic. Um, any of you as I've started using things like bat detectors for insects, um, heterodyne bat detectors, and it's fascinating. There's some amazing stuff you can literally pull out of the air um, using ones that, that demodulate frequencies rather like an FM radio, heterodyne receivers they're called. There's some really interesting work. And also, I mean, particularly those of you who are sort of sound designers, a way of you know abstracting um, new sounds from uh, from what's you know what's around us, there's some bat detectors in particular. I think there's some really interesting transducers. There's another one out as well. There's a, a frequency divider which some people might have used, which takes a, a signal of maybe 40,000 hertz, uh, 40 kilohertz, and there, uh, divides it by 10, so it brings it out to a frequency that we can we can hear. But there's all sorts of interesting structures on it. And this other fantastic device, which at the moment is very expensive, but and has a great title because it's called the Time Expander, um, <laughs> where you take a sample of about three seconds, and it downloads it onto a flashcard, but then plays it back over about thirty seconds. Uh, so yeah, it, it's apparently a much more accurate way of, of, of getting a good idea, an impression of what the actual original sound is like. Anyway, it's a digression. Um, just to um, demonstrate that I do actually sometimes live in the real suburban world. I've got a, an atmosphere recording, and not of animals or insects, but of people. I mean, there are some similarities to that last recording in the, where you heard thousands of individual voices. This, this recording is several hundred, if not thousand, individual voices, but not in the Congo, but in Grand Central station in New York and uh, during the rush hour but it's an atmosphere so it just sits there it doesn't get any louder it doesn't get any quieter but it is quite a loud atmosphere and I guess that's how you would hear it What I really like about this is that everybody knows instantly that it's voices, human voices, and they're in a large acoustic. Our brains are very good at 
are telling us straight away that's a large enclosed environment and you can hear lots of people but it could be you know it's New York it could be Reykjavik it could be Cape Town it could be Delhi um, the language is indiscernible it's just this just amazing hum of human voices <laughs> Just a note on those, for anybody who, I'm sure lots of you have your own techniques, but this is a favourite one of mine. Um, this is, these are two little personal microphones, the sort that you know, get used a lot on hidden under clothing or on news readers, um, just with two little fluffy windshields, but on this very inexpensive but useful microphone holder. <laughs> um, that's available in most of the sort of hotels that I get put in. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's a really good device, and I use it a lot. Uh, I used it for that, um, um, for the Congo recording. Um, I don't use it so much in public. I didn't stand in Grand Central Terminal. <laughs> so I um, rather like I've seen Dan. I actually fixed those capsules either side of my jacket and just wore headphones. Um, the only technique, such as it is, <coughs> with atmospheres, is that you have to you know, put yourself in the right place. It's just like Aaron's framing that camera now. You do exactly the same, I do, I would recommend you do, with headphones. Just like you frame an image, put some headphones on and listen to how the microphones sound. If you don't like it, move the microphones. It makes a massive difference. Um, Ansel Adams had took that picture up there I'm sure didn't walk up and say wow fantastic waterfall put his camera down and start pressing the trigger you know it, it's framed fantastically well you can do exactly the same thing with sound uh, and this is a good technique for investigating acoustic spaces it's also flexible you can bend it and alter the, the spacing it's a very very powerful simple and inexpensive technique the only time when I'm recording atmospheres like in Grand Central Station or the Congo is I don't usually, for an ambience, the atmosphere of a place, unless it's a small place, get too close. Um, you know, if I was recording a, an atmosphere in here, um, you know, I'd thankfully shut up. And that's what we hear. I tend to put the microphones away from any source of sound. It's no good putting it near a light fitting um, where it's going to crackle or near a computer or near a power supply. So I banked the microphones off. When I was in New York, I went and stood um, in one of the corners at the top of the steps, away from any direct source of sound. So what I was hearing and recording was much more reflected sound rather than direct sound. It's the reflected sound that, characters the, uh, that carries the character, I think, of the place. Um, and the same in the Congo. It's no good getting too close to some of those insects that very powerful frequencies are emitted. So that's really, that's their atmospheres. That's um, what I have to say about them. The next term of mine, and it's another invention of mine, it's not a, a rule or a textbook. <coughs> because I work a lot in, in natural history, I've described these next series of recordings of habitats. 
And that's exactly what it is. It allows, whatever the production, it allows the place to speak for itself, which is something that's very close to my heart and important. And I've had a lot of interesting conversations with producers over the years, directors, about using these sounds, particularly in natural history, where you know, a lot of the time music's grossly overused and used like, um, you know, just to plaster over something simply because they don't have the sound. Um, and so, you know, it gets overused. I've tried to encourage a lot of the people I've worked with over the years to use sounds such as these um, habitats um, because I believe it's just a far more eloquent way of letting a place speak for itself rather than trying to construct something. You can make these tracks up in post-production. The main thing about them is, is that you know, they're continuous like atmosphere, but they have a large dynamic range because they have a, a narrative effectively. You know, it represents the characters, the animals, the sounds of that place. So it's important that things are represented. And in order to carry that, in order to carry your audience as well, what I like to hear in them is these peaks and troughs, so a wide dynamic range, <coughs> which also means it's actually quite difficult to use other sounds over the top. Now I appreciate in film terms, television terms, documentary terms, it's often you don't have the time to use long series of recordings in places like this. So you can make up these tracks in post-production, and that I do to a certain extent. Having said that, all these examples are original stereo recordings. This first one is, uh, again, near made uh, on the coast near where I live in Northumberland, and it's a seabird colony, a sea cliff, which is a noisy place. Anyway, people often describe it as sort of seabird city because there's lots of thousands of birds squashed onto ledges. So there's a tremendous amount of vocal activity in the breeding season, which for us is sort of April, May, June. And principally what you hear on this recording are seabirds called kittiwakes, which you have over on the, on the Pacific. Kittiwakes are onomatopoeic, so they say kittiwake, kittiwake in English. And they're beautiful white seagulls with black wingtips. And it's particularly poignant in Northumberland, is that near the, uh, some of the villages near where I recorded this on the sea cliff, fishing communities have stories that kittiwakes um, and the voices are in fact the souls of children who drowned at sea. <laughs> seabirds are very full sound and hopefully you get that sense of, of you know 
dynamics is hard to use anything with that. That was a big sea cliff, you know, I mean, a couple of hundred meters across. But there are interesting habitats in small places. This is a, a relatively old recording of mine. It's one of my favorites, so um, I don't need an excuse to play it. And it was recorded with two of these microphones, but not on a coat hanger, because the spacing for this was, was quite small. So it's a habitat recording, but in a very small space. And in fact, it's within the rib cage of a zebra um, that had been killed and eaten the night before. It's recorded in the Maasai Mara. It's a recording I'd wanted to do for a long time. Um, and before I came across this, the remains of this unfortunate animal um, upturned with this exposed rib cage and a bit of a skull and a tail, and that was about it. Um, so I, about six in the morning, before any, um, the lions had probably killed it, the hyenas had eaten most of it, and there was just a few um, bloody remains, basically, and bones. And what I was hoping for is the vultures, the birds, the animals that clean up everything in the, um, the grasslands of East Africa would come down and devour the rest of this carcass. So I got, wow. I got a pair of these microphones and with cable ties, fixed them either side to the rib cage of this zebra and then buried the cables, buried the, um, the body of the microphone and ran cables back about 70 yards to our Land Rover where I sat and waited and waited and waited mm -hmm. and waited a bit more. The vultures are very, very smart animals. Um, they can spot a zebra carcass on the ground from 10,000 feet. Um, and they eventually, around about midday, saw this and slowly started to descend and then they always land 20, 30 yards away from the carcass and sit and look at it for a couple of hours, sometimes three hours. And then eventually one or two will pile in and that's the moment I was waiting for when they came in and devoured the bones, uh, fortunately not the microphones, but the bones around um, the remains of this zebra. But that's what this recording is. It's a habitat recording in a very small space, uh, but not one that any of us really would want to spend any time in. Um, when uh, Alex, my son's here, when he was a lot younger, did some talks at his school with his um, twin brother. And I always remember saying to them, uh, this class of, I don't know, seven, eight-year-olds I were at the time, I played them this recording, I said, right, if any of you are ever going to be eaten alive by vultures, this will be the last thing that you hear. <laughs> <laughs> we love this. So this is the habitat <laughs> stereo.
I'm not usually anthropomorphic about animals, but vultures sound exactly as you would expect them to sound. <laughs> <laughs> it's like sort of shards of guitar feedback and that. I love that sort of dry hissing of them sort of picking away at the bones. I mean, there's no magic to doing things like that. It's, I mean, you obviously need to be in the right place, but it's a very simple microphone technique. And the thing, you know, that that led, led me on to discover more and more is that the most amazing things you can discover by just by getting microphones into unusual and interesting places, you know. You don't need masses of technology. It's a relatively simple technique. It's about using your ears and just manipulating things, particularly with like this Kotanger technique, because you can poke them into other interesting places. So, you know, it's, it, and you can bring out the most remarkable things. I mean, I started that recording, again, with the kids one, one Christmas. We had a turkey carcass, as I'm sure most of you have had to deal with um, in the last few weeks. And some birds called starlings, which I know you've got here, will, will come down and eat any food scraps. So as the prototype for that recording was just that one Christmas, I, I got our turkey carcass, partly because we didn't want to leave our turkey soup for the next three weeks. But I staked it out in the back garden using tent pegs and put two microphones inside and then ran the cables inside the house with that Alex and the rest. And so we got, and I got this prototype recording just of starlings picking away at a turkey carcass. That, you know, is amplified up sort of a hundred times, but it's a very similar similar technique. Um, th this is another and final habitat recording, but again, it's not a, it's a wild place, but it's not a, a natural landscape. Um, and it's got the sounds which I think, some of them are very animalistic sounds, but in fact, it's a very heavily industrial environment. It's the good shunting yards in Chihuahua in Mexico, where I was a few years ago working on a uh, a project and uh, I was let loose inside this goods yard for an afternoon to explore the sound potential and the, there was a camera crew off just doing shots around the yard and I, and I was wandering about on my own when I made this recording and it's a habitat it's a it's the sound it, you know it, for me it epitomizes the sound and voice and sort of spirit and character of that place um, it's hugely dynamic uh, so it works very well as a habitat. And when I played it to the director, um, and we talked about it, in fact, it's one of the few occasions where they changed the shots to, to fit this recording. It lasts for a minute. It's not mixed or edited. This is, you have to trust me, this is how it happened on location. And in fact, what they did in the end for the sequence, it was a television documentary in the series called Great Railway Journeys for BBC television. They cut the film around this piece of sound. So it ran without any commentary, without any other music for a minute. And Mike um, Wadding, the director, simply cut static shots of the goods yard with nothing moving and let the sound sort of carry it through. But for me, it's almost like a piece of classical music. It has this beautiful form, like an ABA form to it.
reflect where half that stuff came from because it just it just all sort of kicked off around me. So it was a very spontaneous moment, but um, a really amazing thing to be able to, to capture. I'll just close this first session then. I've just got three recordings of the other element which I seek out, uh, of course, a lot, and it's the featured sound. I call it a, um, a featured species, but of course, it could be anything. It could be dialogue, it could be um, a coin being dropped in the street, it could be gunfire, it could be birdsong, but it's the one featured thing that you want to illustrate at any one moment. So it's the thing that I go out, it's the, the character of the moment, if you like, whether it's animate or not. Um, and I've got three different examples. The first one is, a, is of a bird um, called a capicale, which is a turkey-like bird, a large game bird which lives in the forests of northern Scotland in the Cairngorms um, and has this bizarre and quite remarkable display in April. Um, uh, and this involved me putting microphones out around the, the forest. And I was fortunate to get one, this one, very close and again rather like the vulture recording it reveals sounds that are in order or would be inaudible um, six feet away these very small cork popping sounds um, it also has interestingly uh, um, bioacoustics uh, acousticians have been looking at it, it produces these amazing wing flaps which contain infrasound um, so Interestingly, it carries two messages at once. It's displaying, it's giving a sexual display to attract a female with these small, very intimate, percussive sounds. Um, and yet it's communicating across the forest floor um, over a wide distance to deter other potential rival males with these very low, low, very low frequency but very high energy wing flaps. So this is a, a featured recording the, te the technical point about this for editors is that the background is very low, so it's easy to cut this sound, to chop it up, to rearrange it, to fit an image or to fit whatever's required. Um, the background, excuse me, there is a background content which is the ambient hiss of a conifer forest. That sort of um, whispering in the leaves that you get at through small pine needles. Um, which is fine because it's constant, it's not varied, so even though there is a background to it, it's still a useful recording to edit. The other interesting thing about this, this was um, uh, the singer Bjork uses some of my material in, in her concerts, and she picked this out in an interview as being a favorite rhythm track um, two years ago.
recording the, these birds display very early in the morning and the, uh, from about 3 a.m. And the warden, who was uh, sort of has a dislike of anybody associated with the media, and as I've worked with him a few times, um, said that I couldn't go out at half past two in the morning to get close to these birds. I had to spend the night there. I had to go out at 10 o'clock at night and stay in this bivouac camouflage hide inside a, a sleeping bag um, because he wanted me to. So I did that for five nights to get this recording armed only with this tape recorder, some cable and a, a litre bottle of some very good malt whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a, a, the other end of the scale. This is a, a featured species, a tiny recording of um, a not very tiny insect. This is a giant Madagascan hissing cockroach. Mm -hmm. um, not recorded in Madagascar, but recorded in a friend's apartment in Greenwich who lives above a Thai restaurant um, where these things have moved in from. I could record it in his apartment with the curtains drawn and close to some um, soft furnishings so you could get a very clean, this is actually quite a sound even though it's a frighteningly large cockroach if anybody's seen them. Um, you could get a close-up recording by again using one of these um, microphones. It's a very safe distance. Um, <laughs> but you could get the microphone really close and you get it within a centimetre of the back of that insect as it expels air through its, its, um, its casing. So, and inside a soft furnished apartment, it's actually it's a good place to get, you know, it's like a little, your own recording booth. Whereas outside in the wild, it actually would be quite challenging to get a recording with that such good signal to ambient noise, which means, you know, the sound is, is loud enough to to mask any, any background, so it's a very useful thing. So both those previous recordings were mono, because a lot of what I do, uh, I record the featured sounds in mono, because invariably it's going into a stereo habitat, as I um, played earlier, or even sometimes a stereo atmosphere. But some animals are social animals, and they communicate um, their messages and use the acoustics of their environment to sort of modulate that message, if you like. And there are also lo lots of them. So it's not only is it extremely difficult, if not impossible, to record social animals individually, um, there's actually not much point when you want to capture that whole sense of them <laughs> communicating together, in particular when they're using the acoustics of one environment. And this, this is the final recording I'll play. This is the, um, for this first, first bit. These are, this is a species recording, but it's in stereo because the stereo matters, their habitat matters. And these are hippopotamus um, on the banks of the River Mara in, in Kenya. And I had a friend of Maasai, who I've known for a long time, who would take me out to various places. And um, he, he took me to this place where I made this recording. And um, I mean, it's, it's 
hippos have this very characteristic laughing sound. I mean, they're not funny animals. They kill more people in Africa than any other animal, hippos. Um, but Francis always said to me, the Maasai have a saying that um, hippopotamus spend all day on the river and they come out, and all, they spend all day on the riverbed telling each other jokes and they come out in the evening to laugh. So that's when this recording was made just at sunset as the hippos are emerging from the river. around the, so it was, uh, you know, used a long panoramic pole, and then just rested it, and, uh, uh, you know, I wasn't holding it, it was rested on a branch, and then I just re-carried it back to a vehicle, because you need to stay in vehicles. It sounds so close, though. It's a big sound, but, and also the use, um, I actually should have said that, the use the corners of rivers, and so, you know, where the, the river rose into the bank, they'll come out. Whether it's because the water's deep there, but when they call, the sound comes straight off this hard bait. So it's sort of bang. It's like an acoustic amplifier, a bit like a reflector. It comes back, and so if you put the microphone sort of the hot spot in that, then you get the sound, but you get this reverberation as well. Yeah. It's very rich, yeah. So deep organ like tones. Yeah. Do you photograph the scenes that you're recording? Sometimes, but I sometimes just take a snap, but not. Um, no, not not you. No, just only for my own records. Yeah. 
Just with a little. There are these Sony ECM 77s. They're just little <laughs> electrodes. Yeah, yeah. But I use I use the D DPAs as well. Back to Chris Watson. Thanks. I've just brought. Um, if you'll indulge me with some of these, I've brought along some recordings that I'm actually working with at the moment, but uh, something that was, came as a revelation to me. And a couple of years ago, I was uh, um, commissioned to make a series of recordings for a National Geographic series on the Galapagos Islands. Um, and so I went out there, <coughs> first of all, on a, um, a site visit and, and, and to do some recording. And I very quickly realised that, of course, <coughs> a lot of the series was actually being filmed in um, and under the surface of the Pacific. I mean, we mistakenly call our world planet Earth, but of course it's would be far better called planet ocean. Seven-tenths of our world is the oceans. Um, and I, when I realised that so much of the film was going to be shot underwater, that I, um, I was trying to think of ways in which we could bring sound, you know, location sound, natural sound, to the film. And so I thought I'd not really used hydrophones much uh, at all then. Uh, hydrophones are underwater microphones. So I, um, um, I thought, well, we should do this in stereo. And then I, I talked to the producer, and he said, well, actually, we've got to produce this in surround. So I thought it would be perfect because I've just got the. Um, new at the time, sound devices, 744, the four-channel hard disk recorder. So I thought, well, why not? We'll try and record some of the ocean sounds in the surround. So that's exactly what I did. I, we got four hydrophones, and the ones I used at the time were the dolphin ear hydrophones. Um, and we used four of those in a spaced array <coughs> on a piece of quite, uh, quite a heavy construction of hardwood. So we could lower it, and uh, and it would remain in place as the currents swirled around it. Because there's a lot of, I'm sure you know, a lot of powerful currents around the Galapagos, Humboldt Current in particular. So you get these wonderful movements, just of air, water currents. It's, I suppose it's the equivalent of wind through leaves when you hear the water swishing through kelp and dragging along the ocean floor. There's some amazing sounds down there. So this this is a, a series of and a selection of recordings really just to illustrate some of the stuff I was doing. And some of these are raw recordings that then went on to be used in the film. The first thing I did was record on the edge of the ocean on the main island, Santa Cruz, again with this little spaced on the array, but getting very close to the water's edge um, within a few inches and trying not to get the, the microphone splashed. This is a spaced on the right on the water's edge at the top of Tortuga Bay, Galapagos, with the, um, the DPA 4060 space um, just under the middle part, but right down at the sand level, just on the very edge of where these small waves are breaking um, by the mangroves. The whole point about this again is getting the microphone in close so you hear sort of detail or it's revealed in a different way.
simple enough. And then came the first of the experiments for me, which was to put the hydrophones more or less, and I was talking to Aaron about this, um, at the same perspective but underwater. So this, this next recording is made with the hydrophones, just a few in very shallow water with tiny little wavelets washing over it. The practical note about this is that, as I'm, I know you, some of you have discovered, the, you know, the hydrophone, if it's knocked about, you get microphony like you would if you were banging any microphone about. So I ended up having to bury the hydrophones about um, eight inches down in the sand. But the, these little wavelets are breaking over the sand, the tiny waves. But of course, in seawater, sound travels five times faster than through air. So what you hear are these little waves, but coming from, a, from many feet away and actually breaking over the hydrophone. And this is a four-channel recording. Then I was, you know, I was amazed at hearing that how the, the difference between simply moving, changing the transducers, but just mo moving uh, a foot. Um, so I started as we moved out and lived um, on this boat. Unfortunately for me, I'm not a very good sailor. I told the producer before we set off. I only normally work on boats if they've got three funnels and a ballroom. Um, but the ones we were on were quite small, and we had a little um, place on the back for lowering equipment in. Um, so I rigged um, four uh, DPA Omnis on that so I could have the microphones safely but close to the water. And then I had a similar array that we could lower into the water with the hydrophones. So what follows with these recordings are a series of comparisons between sound above the water and, and underneath at various depths. This is um, a recording of the sea washing through kelp uh, on one of the offshore islands. Top side. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. 
equivalent recording um, with the hydrophones down in amongst the kelp, four hydrophones. sounds is that the you know they've got there's so much sort of reminiscence of sounds it sounds like it's water obviously but it has this otherworldly element to it which I find really fascinating I think there's a lot to be explored with you know these sort of techniques in in, in places like this um, not only the comparison but the fact that you know it sounds so similar and yet it's so different there's a lot to explore I think with hydrophones and geophones and other sorts of transducers. Um, we had one occasion where we were staying out off, off an uninhabited island, Genovesa, Darwin Island. And one, the one thing I've always wanted to get is the sound of the open ocean um, without, you know, or as little background from water slapping on boats or rocks. So I've always been intrigued about what it sounds like in the open ocean. So we decided one night um, after a few drinks, the producer said he would take me out um, to a little island, a little rocky outcrop, and put me on that um, so I could hang these DPAs over the sea. There was no boat traffic, it was a calm night. So, this is simply the sounds of the middle of the Pacific, about as far out as we could get. The Galapagos are a thousand kilometres off the coast of Ecuador, with no shipping and say very little wind, but just this. Um, ambience of the open Pacific Ocean. Quite a lonely sound. That's a very simple sound, but the revelation for me came when we were coming back and we put the four-channel array down, as deep down as we could get, out, right out um, in the middle of the ocean, effectively. And, and it's astonishing, because at night, 
um, a lot of um, life, the plankton, crustaceans, because the um, light level goes, a lot of life comes up to the surface. So you have this amazing chorus, um, crackling chorus of what I think, I'm fairly sure, are pistol shrimps um, that just fill the ocean, particularly at night. And I think, you know, we're talking about, you know, the seven-tenths of our world is ocean. If our planet has a signature sound, if it has a common sound, then this is it. Because I've made recordings of pistol shrimps on the equator where the Galapagos is, and at 66, 67 degrees north where I was in August in Iceland, there's a commonality to the sounds of our oceans, and there's certainly not the secret silent world that I grew up with. I remember, as I'm sure a lot of you did, watching television documentaries by <coughs> people like Jacques Cousteau, you know, the silent world of Jacques Cousteau, a diver and filmmaker. It's complete nonsense because of anything but, you know, the oceans are absolutely full, brimming with life and brim, brimming with sound. There's a great noise pollution issue in, in how the sounds and noises that we're, pu we're putting into our oceans. Um, but nevertheless, you know, the, the common sound is this sound, is pistol shrimps around the earth. sound actually, which I'm sure you'll sure some of you will hear, a very strange sound um, which I'll talk about at the end of this, but principally it's this chorus of pistol shrimps I want you to listen to. Hopefully some of you have heard this bizarre sort of squeaking sound. <laughs> there was just me and the producer out there and we thought we'd discovered some new species of <laughs> sea mammal. Because wherever we went we could hear this sound, but it always it was always tantalizingly in the in the background behind that curtain of the sounds of pistol shrimps. So we had an outboard on, so of course we couldn't record when that was on. So we would, we would go a few hundred yards, stop, put the hydrophones in. We heard that sound. We went over to a sea wall, a cliff on the island, because we thought it might be something that was making this sound down there. It, was always, it always seemed a long way from us. And we were completely confused as to what this thing was. And I was sat at the, the sharp end of the boat, and Patrick was sat at the back, and I was watching him. 
and he had his arm on the tiller and I was watching the tiller and I suddenly realised it wasn't some amazing seaman. It was the noise of, the, of this tiller which we've been going around in a circle trying to find for the last two hours. So the great thing about, there's a lot to explore with hydrophones but the thing is lots of the time you're never sure what you're recording. Um, if you just keep this sound in your memory for a moment. That's the Pacific Ocean on the equator. This is Husavik, uh, and just inside the Arctic Circle, the coast of Iceland, in August this year. Obviously it's not the same, but it's that similar characteristic, pistol shrimp. Yeah, yeah. biologist, uh, a German friend of mine um, called Vincent Yannick, and, um, who, who can identify fish sounds like some people can identify bird sounds, and without a hint, trace of a smile or irony. When he was listening to these recordings, he heard this one go through. Let's try again. And Vincent just says, cod. <laughs> Identifying you know, some species of warbler, and that is apparently cod. Is that a ship at the beginning? Oh, sorry? Is it kind of like a broadband, like low I know, I have no idea. There's nothing around. It could be, it could be miles away. Um, I think it's the it's, well, it may be a different species, but it's the same sort of family. And they communicate, I believe, by you know by snapping the jaws, the pincers, and producing cavitation. How large are they? They can be tiny. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I think they're very small. Um, and and so what you're hearing is actually a mechanical sound. You know, it's not a vocalization, but but it's actually a communication. Um, the last two tracks I'll play again something different, but again just I mean hint at a fantastic area to start exploring for all of us. So I mean, it's, uh, and it's you know something that's open and accessible. Um, last year I was in Okefenokee, I think it's in Georgia, a swamp, amazing place, vast swamp, but because it had very little rain, a lot of it had dried up, and we were there to um, try and record. Um, some amphibians, but in fact, because it was so dry, they weren't they weren't breeding. But I had my hydrophones, um, which are also usable as geophones, so you can put them in water. And I think you can do this with most hydrophones. But they'll also work in substrate, so you can bury them in sand, or in this case, in in silt, or in any sort of compound, earth, 
uh, and they'll work in the same way as a contact microphone works so they can be very revealing and this is finally two recordings again comparison recordings this is the sound during the day um, just with a pair of spaced omnis these two omnis just at sort of knee height um, in the grass around the edge of where the swamp would normally be Well, there was, because um, those mics were very low down, there was some breeze, a little bit of breeze. Some of the taller trees were shifting and moving, as were some of the bushes. This next recording that follows was made minutes after that last recording, but with the hydrophones, but I said using them as geophones, just quickly buried in about a foot and a half of silt in the same place where those topside microphones were. But this is the sound of the swamp from underground, if you like. section with somebody coming and asking me what the hell I thought I was doing <laughs> some wires going into the ground I think I thought I'd planted some explosives <laughs> and some footfalls but I thought it was amazingly revealing just how that place is transformed it's the same place you know more or less at the same time but literally from a different perspective and through another medium uh, and I just think it's you know the potential for working with sound like that is, um, is fantastic Anyway, thank yeah. you for listening. Thank you. Thank you.